cord to the Welcome to Nurse Practitioners Changing Practice. I'm Carol. Hi, I'm Nina. And today we are just blessed to have Dr. Dan Young with us, who is a nephrologist in the area. He uh, is with Midwest Nephrology and from uh, I've worked with uh, Dr. Young uh, many, many, many uh, years now. So you are just one of the best nephrologists, in my opinion, in the area. You take care of your patients so wonderfully. And we're really glad to have you with us tonight. Yeah, this is great. Thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for the kind introduction. I, I love podcasts and I love educating. Uh, I look for opportunities in private practice to uh, educate my colleagues. I'm really excited to be here tonight. So I know as a nurse practitioner, I have uh, worked in the hospital. I've worked with you quite a bit there. Um, and I've also uh, worked out in a rural America where I've referred people to nephrologists and I've been that primary caregiver. And I know that kidneys really play just a huge part in a lot of disease processes, the medicines we give, um, the issues with hypertension. Um, I know that you are more uh, the specialist with hypertension because kidneys have so much to do with that. Anemia, chronic disease, all of these things. And, you know, like when do we really need, what tests do we need to get? When do we really need to refer? So I know I've asked you a lot of things. You prepared some slides that we can go through. So I'm going to share my screen and I'm going to let you kind of walk us through this presentation. Um, let me go uh, enable editing. Okay, and I'm going to put the slideshow from the beginning and you can take it away. Oh, great. Thanks, Carol. And, and thank you for giving me uh, some ideas of uh, um, high quality items to review tonight. Um, I guess the first place I would start is whether you're taking care of a, a kidney patient or any patient, um, I would just, I would make sure that you pay attention to drug dosing. And, and I still use Hippocrates um, almost every day, a, a free drug reference that you can put on uh, your Android or iPhone uh, to look up drug dosing for different stages of kidney disease or uh, different dosing for hemodialysis or peritoneal dialysis patients. Um, probably one of the most common um, drugs I see used maybe inappropriately, uh, especially for CKD patients, is Bactrim double strength uh, uh, um, uh, twice daily for 10 days. Bactrim is a great drug for the right patient, but for patients with um, an elevated creatinine or patients who are on medications that can increase the, the potassium, it's a very dangerous drug to use. And then also uh, I, would, I would draw attention to um, learning which drugs have uh, long half-lives or which drug metabolites have long half-lives. For example, spironolactone itself as a drug has a short half-life, but its metabolites can last uh, over one day. So sometimes I'll take care of patients in the hospital who have high potassiums, uh, and it takes a couple of days to resolve because the, the, the spironolactone metabolites are are taking a while to get out of the system. Why did you mention that too? Because I mean, yeah. half-lives are huge. I mean, if you look at an elderly person, first of all, kidney function in an elderly person just decreases, even if they don't have chronic kidney disease to some degree, just aging. And like a drug like Haldol is grabbed very quickly and it has a tremendous half-life. You know, it's, it's way out there. 
Mm-hmm. And sometimes you can use that to your advantage. Amlodipine right. has a half-life of 52 hours. So uh, if um, you need to give a medication uh, three days a week, a blood pressure medication three days a week, that might be a great option. Um, uh, chlorothalidone has a much longer half-life than hydrochlorothiazide. So that's that's another... Why don't we um, see that used more often? <laughs> I mean, I've heard that chlorothalidone has got a much better program than hydrochlorothiazide, but we don't, I don't know. We don't use it. Yeah. You know, we, I think we should use it more often. And in fact, uh, just um, a few weeks ago in the New England Journal of Medicine, there was an article looking at using uh, chlorothalidone in essentially stage four CKD patients, patients with GFRs of 15 to 30. And Mm -hmm. and it was found to be an effective drug lowering the blood pressure by, Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was either 11 or 12 uh, millimeters of mercury. So um, I think we should use it uh, more often. And um, this recent paper. Maybe we'll start seeing it then more often. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I, I mean, like I said, I've, I could count on my hands the time I've actually seen that as opposed to hydrochlorothiazide. Also, I learned early in my practice, and you can talk a little more about this, but like over 25 milligrams, hydrochlorothiazide doesn't really do much more if you bump it to 50. Yep. Is that true? Uh, you know, for, for, for most of my patients, if I'll, if I put them or have them on hydrochlorothiazide, I usually use 25. I do see uh, 50 used from time to time. Oh. I think um, I would just worry more about the, the side effects, you know, uh, yeah. uh, hypokalemia and uh, metabolic alkalosis with uh, higher doses. So. so this is the next slide for us. Oh, so if you want to order the basic, the, the very most basic of labs for ongoing CKD care, and in my practice, I take care of a lot of different um, uh, um, uh, uh, patient, uh, you know, SSM patients, BJC patients, Mercy, St. Luke's, uh, VA, and I have some no-pay patients. So if I, if I need just very basic tests for ongoing CKD care, uh, these are the four I would recommend. A renal function panel, which is just a basic metabolic profile with an albumin and a phosphorus, a CBC uh, to look at the hemoglobin, but sometimes the white cell count and the platelets can clue you into different disorders. A UA looking for hematuria, uh, uh, pyuria, or uh, protein. And then also you want to uh, do a random micro- urine microalbumin to creatinine ratio, uh, not only for your diabetics, but probably at least once a year for your hypertensives as, as oh. well. And anyone who um, has CKD, you may want to do this at least once a year um, because sometimes you'll see non-diabetics, non-hypertensive with proteinuria, and that can be a clue uh, to their uh, underlying illness. So I understand in the renal panel, the BMP and the albumin, what's the phosphorus going to tell us? Yeah. Um, So for your stage three patients, it's probably not going to add a whole lot to your care. If you see a low phosphorus, um, uh, um, uh, that, that, that typically is going to be inappropriate unless the patient is uh, malnourished or not eating or something like that. Um, You can start to see phosphorus elevations with stage four patients. And um, uh, phosphorus really correlates with vascular calcification. So the majority of patients with CKD in the U.S. and worldwide, the majority of them don't ever reach a point where they need dialysis. 
And we'd like to think it's because they're seeing great uh, kidney doctors, but the truth is it's because uh, they're going to struggle with heart disease or a stroke well before they reach that point. So anything you can do ahead of time to lower the risk of heart attack, stroke is really important. Phosphorus, uh, high phosphorus can be one clue that they're at a higher risk for vascular calcification, just as uh, uh, an elevated microalbumin to creatinine ratio can be. So we see a high phosphorus, we wanna be a little more aggressive on getting the, um the, the uh, lipids down? Uh, definitely, and making sure they're at blood pressure goal. And you may even want to have that patient get some um, uh, um, phosphorus education from a dietitian. If they're close to needing dialysis, you may even put them on a phosphate binder. Got it. All right, good, good, uh, good information. Secondary hypertension. Now, I, you know, I don't think this gets talked about enough. We, I see everybody just puts essential hypertension and they don't. I myself this year have uh, discovered three cases of hyperaldosteronism that has been going on for a while. And great work. To, although I have uh, chronic kidney disease at the top of my list here, really, I probably should put hyperaldosteronism at the top of the list. And to back up just a little bit, um, secondary hypertension, maybe 10 to 20% of the time, we can come up with a pretty good reason why an adult has high blood pressure. So, so that's, that's really the patient we're referring to when we do a workup for secondary hypertension. There are over 200 genes in the body that uh, help regulate blood pressure control. So, you know, for the vast majority of adult patients, you're not going to be able to, to pinpoint the, their cause of high blood pressure to, to one thing. But, but this is the list I think about. And actually, when I see patients for secondary hypertension evaluations, I print a, a similar list to this. I bring it in the room with me and I go over each diagnosis one by one with the patient. And I tell them why it does or does not. Oh, for some them. reason, I'm not hearing you, Dr. Young. I'm not sure what's going on. Can you hear me now? I don't know if it's my. I think it's you, Carol. Ah. Okay, it's saying my. Try talking again. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. I get uh, sometimes our internet gets unstable and it kind of cuts out. So don't worry, we're good. Um, so, so I was saying, uh, when I evaluate patients for secondary hypertension, I will print that list and I will uh, bring that list uh, into the office and review causes one by one with the patient. And um, CKD, that's going to be evident by blood tests. Hyperaldosteronism, you're going to have to check a renin level and an aldosterone level. Uh, sleep apnea. What's the cue for that? I mean, my cue has been that the, I, I, I'll you'll get it wrong now, but the sodium and the potassium are off. And you know, if, so, so, if, you know, if, if definitely those are things to, to look at, I, I think historically some of the other older docs will say if the, if the sodium is, is a little bit high, that's one of their clues and, and definitely um, aldosterone causes increased potassium secretion. Mm -hmm. So if they have a low potassium, but a lot of patients with normal potassiums can have hyperaldosteronism. Yeah. I, I would say anybody who, um, you know, is not well controlled on one or two uh, blood, you know, reasonable doses of blood pressure agents. Um, I think checking a renin and an aldosterone level is, is really- So just be suspicious if you have somebody who you're having a hard time controlling. I, th I think so. Um, or, or somebody where, um, uh, it, it, it doesn't make sense. You know, really these secondary hypertensive patients are, you know, somebody who has been stable for a long time and then all of a sudden their blood pressure is not well controlled or somebody who's developing high blood pressure well before they should, you know, the 35 year old female. 
So what about um what I was gonna say something with hyperaldosterone. Oh well go ahead, I'll think of it. I'm sorry. <laughs> go um, ahead and do the list. You know, for, for some of my patients, uh, I'll go through the Ellsworth uh, sleep scale to see if I need to refer them for a sleep yep. study for sleep apnea. Uh, if somebody has sleep apnea and you treat them with CPAP, it can result in, uh, you know, it's as good as another blood pressure medication on the average, about a seven point uh, blood pressure reduction. Um, renal vascular disease, I, you know, I think about this and if somebody's had a CAT scan, I'll look for uh, renal artery stenosis, but I, I rarely send patients for renal artery stenting. And fibromuscular dysplasia, you want to think about that in the young female with um, high blood pressure. Uh, Pheochromocytoma is very rare. I'm still looking for my first one. Uh, same, same with uh, Cushing's, but these disorders of yeah. the adrenal gland, you want to do 24-hour urines. Yes. Um, thyroid disorders, that's you know easily checked with a, starting with a TSH. And then hyperparathyroidism, your, your clue would be a, an inappropriately high calcium. Yep. Yep. That's I always, I tell my students yep. always, you get too much calcium, you check a PTH, that's your next test. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Uh, obesity, we see a, a lot of patients with obesity. And um, I, I think that the important caveat there is I see a lot of patients where when they lose weight, I get to start uh, removing some of their medications. Um, polycystic kidney disease, uh, that's, you know, the most common genetic uh, uh, kidney disease. Um, those patients, uh, you really want to have strict blood pressure control with them. And then medications, you know, are they taking phenylephrine or pseudoephedrine, um, sodium intake? Sometimes I do 24-hour urine collections just to see what their um, uh, sodium intake is, what, what goes in has to come out. And then alcohol, you know, you want to uh, do a good uh, uh, social history on these patients to see uh, if they're drinking, how much they're drinking. I remember my question now. In the hospital, we couldn't check a renin creatinine level. Am I right? There was, oh. there was it was a problem, but you can order that out outpatient, right? I think it may have been. We, we can order renin and aldosterone pretty easily in the hospitals. One of the hospitals did not allow us to check plasma metanephrines. Mm. Ah, okay, oh, okay. for pheochromocytoma. Okay. Yep. And really, you want to do twenty-four hour studies, but in the if they're only going to be in the hospital less than twenty-four hours, maybe you want to. Uh, check the, the so would you order a renin and aldosterone ratio or do you order them how do you order yeah that? how do you order that? Uh, i would order them both sometimes they will be um combined in a panel and i try to order that so that there's no mix-up in the lab where they they get one result not the other and then um if if here's my rule of thumb if the if the aldosterone level is less than five, it's unlikely that they have a hyperaldosterone. Uh, okay. so if it's over fifteen, it's, it's pretty likely, and you might want to do adrenal imaging. If it's between uh, five and fifteen, you want to put some thought into it. But they could have hyperaldosteronism. That's a good tip. That's a great tip. It's a great tip. Traditionally, I think that if the ratio is greater than twenty, you thought about it. But uh, I think if you um, Maybe just focus on that five and fifteen cutoff for aldosterone. That's that's a good uh, rule of thumb. Okay. Now the natremias, hyper and hypo. Those are those are those are confusing sometimes. Is what yeah. to do for them? In, in hypernatremia, um, we don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but I would say ninety-five percent of the time it's just a water issue. So the nursing home patient who get who hasn't been eating for four days and gets admitted with a sodium of one fifty-six. You just need to pull out your free uh, medical calculator, calculate their water deficit, 
and you can be pretty aggressive when you're replacing them with D5W. Um, and, and a fast correction with hypernatremia is, is typically okay, unlike hyponatremia. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, if, if you've done your correction and you've given them D5 and you come back the next day and the sodium hasn't budged, if their urine osmolality is low, that can be a clue that there's diabetes insipidus present, either central or um, uh, nephrogenic. And D5W is the, um, the fluid of choice here. Well, uh, um, I mean, um, probably just giving water by mouth would be the fluid of choice. But if they're obtunded where it's not safe for them to drink, or if you don't have a, a Dobhoff or an NG, uh, yeah, something that doesn't have additional sodium or chloride in it. So, but sometimes you can run into real high sugars with D5W, so. Yeah. And any, um, anything for just like, if they wanted to, they just put a water deficit calculator. Hippocrates should have that, right? They yeah. Have I, calculators. I, I think the, um, the two I use on my phone most often, one's called Calculate, and then the other one is called Nef, Nef Plus. Nef Plus. Okay. Yeah, but you could go to Google too and just do a Google search for, you know, hypernatremia, calculate free water deficit. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. And then the biggie. Hypo. Hypo. So That's the mess, messy one. Hydrochlorothiazide, big offender with that one too. Yeah. You, so great uh, segue into my second point. Like the medication review is critical. Are they on a thiazide or any distal diuretic? You know, chlorothalidone, yeah. Chlorothalidone might be even worse, right? Yeah, chlorothaladone, you could have the same thing. Uh, spironolactone. Spironolactone. So, yeah, you know, your loop diuretics are generally going to uh, cause an increase in the sodium if they if they alter the, the sodium, whereas your thiazides and uh, potassium sparing, if they have an effect on the sodium, it's usually to, to decrease it. If, if you can at least just start, you know, once you recognize they have a low sodium, if you can start uh, with a, a blood osmolality, a urine osmolality and a urine sodium, you're going to be, uh, uh, you know, 95% ahead of, of, of most hospitalists uh, in terms of managing hyponatremia. So tell us what these, what these are going to, what are, what are we looking for? You will always tell me it's in the test. The test will tell you the cause. So can you explain a little more what you mean by that? Yeah, so the blood osm, really, most of the time when you deal with hyponatremia, you're dealing with hypotonic hyponatremia. So you'd have a low blood osm, probably less than 275. Sometimes there are going to be other things in the blood, like proteins or um, uh, cholesterol, uh, especially if the cholesterol is real high, or if you have a multiple myeloma patient who has a really high M protein, uh, you can get a high blood osm and a, and, a, and a low sodium. Or if somebody has a high sugar, that's a real common cause of, of pseudohyponatremia in the hospital. If their blood sugar is 400 and their, their sodium is 129, the issue is is, is their high blood sugar. So, so but 95% of the time, probably the, the blood osm is going to be low and you're going to confirm that they have hypotonic hyponatremia. So after that, you really want to, you want to do your medication review. You want to do your past medical history. You want to do your exam. And then the urine osm and the urine sodium are really going to clue you in. So well, now you your SSNRIs and your SSRIs are offenders too, right? Yeah, any, anything that increases serotonin can increase uh, ADH release and cause... Uh, um, uh, so anything, I mean, it could be tramadol. Yeah, well, uh, nausea can increase ADH release, pain can increase uh, ADH release, narcotics can increase wow. ADH release, uh, you know, your um, anti-inflammatories, your non-steroidals can, uh, can cause low sodium levels. 
when you have a low blood sodium level, you really should see a low urine sodium and a low urine osmolality. So if your urine sodium is not less than 20 or 30, and if your urine osm is not less than 100, that's when you have to start thinking about these uh, alternative diagnoses. And then the last point I'll make about the, the hyponatremia is just you, you really want to work hard to avoid rapid correction, especially in uh, 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 small women and in yeah. uh, patients with cirrhosis. You want to avoid uh, the osmotic demyelination syndrome. Okay. So in, in clinical, like if this was a patient I was seeing in clinical practice, they probably would, I mean, they might have chronically low um, like their, their sodium might be in the 120s most of the time, and they don't have really any symptoms. Is that an indication that this is probably medication driven? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, one, one of the subsets of SIDH is uh, reset osmostats. So there's a, a group of patients where uh, their bodies just release ADH at different levels than the rest of us. But one thing I would tell you about that patient is they are at risk. So if you did, uh, you know, real specific neurologic testing, you could find abnormalities in most patients. They're going to be at risk for falls. Chronic hyponatremia increases their risk for osteoporosis. So you want to you want to evaluate those patients and and try to treat them. Most of my patients, I try to get them uh, to one thirty or higher. Okay. So as long as when our one thirties, we're okay. But anybody, but it's getting below that, it's getting a little bit. What about our psychiatric patients? Have you run into a poly? Uh, oh, what is that called? Um, it's the psycho, psycho, um, psychogenic polydipsia. Yeah. 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 That where they drink water, water, yeah, and it causes their sodium to go down. They get the sodium and then they sometimes even have had seizures because they've drank so much water that it's really gone down dangerously low. Yep. And your clue there is going to be, uh, they're going to have a low blood sodium. They're going to have a low blood osm and their kidneys are doing the right thing. So you'll, you'll see a low urine sodium, you'll see a low urine osmolality. And most of the time you'll have, you'll be fortunate to have a little bit of history that they're drinking yeah. two gallons of, of water two gallon, a day. Two gallons of water a day, right? <laughs> and those patients, they're easy to treat. You know, you just, you fluid restrict them, but these patients, you have to monitor them closely uh, for rapid correction because their kidneys are working properly. So oh, mm -hmm. if you, if you fluid restrict them uh, quickly, their, their sodium can, can shoot so up. What what would be a safe fluid restriction? Um, it, it depends on the patient. Uh, I might start with uh, two liters a day if they really have polydipsia and just, you know, do sodium levels every four hours, or every six hours in the hospital. Okay. All right. That, that makes good sense. All right. Well, anything else on hyponatremia? Nope. Just, just go slow. <laughs> <laughs> anemia of of renal, renal disease. Yeah, so, so some of the bullet points here, just uh, in um, in the dialysis units and in, in the clinic for stage four, stage five CKD patients not on dialysis yet, uh, we're gonna target a hemoglobin of 10 to 11. Um, and, and when we're correcting anemia, we're not, we're not keeping them alive longer. What we're hopefully doing is we're hopefully uh, helping them to feel better. And we're uh, also hopefully helping patients avoid blood transfusions. Uh, and that's important because um, you don't want someone to be sensitized uh, uh, needlessly and, and that, that decreases their chance of getting a kidney transplant. And then also blood transfusions have their own uh, 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 risk profile side effects. So there are a couple different mechanisms for anemia in uh, kidney disease. The kidneys produce erythropoietin. And so uh, as uh, kidney disease worsens, the kidneys might produce less 
or uh, uh, if especially a hyperparathyroidism or high phosphorus levels, you might become resistant to the action of uh, erythropoietin. Uh, I like to uh, give the analogy of filling the gas tank before you step on the gas pedal. So I like to make sure that patients have enough iron before we start uh, giving them a, a, a Procrit or some other erythropoiesis stimulating. So Venifer is that there used to be one that I used to give that was two doses instead of the Venifer. Oh, uh, I think um, uh, Injectifer can be given uh, uh, over two doses, but Venifer uh, can be given over three doses, uh, three days apart in the hospital. So do you do 100 milligrams or what, what, what dose do you like for Venifer? So if I have someone and I really want to iron repeat them in the hospital, I'll give them 300 milligrams daily over three days. Uh, if they're a heart failure patient, I know they're going to be there for a while. I'll do 200 milligrams daily over five days because that the 200 milligram can be given as a slow IV push and a small amount of volume over uh, 10 minutes, whereas the 300 milligrams will come in a pretty good size bag. What would um, you do outpatient? Outpatient, I would give 300 milligrams weekly over three weeks. Okay. Um, if I see that there are two cell lineages that are abnormal, I might refer those patients to hematology. So if I see that their, you know, their white cell count is two and their hemoglobin is nine, um, I'm not going to uh, necessarily work up their anemia and treat it myself. I might ask for hematology mm -hmm. help. Or if they, uh, same thing, if the platelet count is 57,000. Uh, yeah, I, I that's I a good point. That's a, that's a really, a really good important point. And then I still use um, the MCV to help guide the evaluation. Oh, okay. So if their MCV is 104, I'm, I, in addition to iron levels, uh, I'll probably still check their, their B12 and folate levels. What do you like that B12 level to be at? I mean, it's got a wide range. Sometimes they're like at 250, they're still above normal, but they're kind of on the low side. Right. And I, I think, I don't know what the cutoff is, but less than 400. If you, if you are really suspicious for B12 deficiency, you're supposed to check a, a methylmalonic acid level. Um, mm. I, I, I don't do that routinely. I, I'll typically just put them on a 90 day course of, uh, of B12 and recheck their level after three months. But I still use the MCV to help guide uh, my, yeah. my uh, evaluation and management. Yeah, I mean, that's the one I use definitely myself to see if it's macrocytic or microcytic. Absolutely. So Carol asked uh, in the email, when, when should you refer to a nephrologist? And so I'll use this classification system to help answer that. And so we break patients up into uh, different stages. And most of you are probably familiar with the, the stage three stage four uh, and stage five uh, CKD. Stage three patients have GFRs between 30 and 60, stage four, 15 and 30. Stage five patients are less than 15. And then ESRD are patients on dialysis, typically a GFR less than 10. But uh, what I'd like to point out here is I might be more worried about the patient who has a GFR of 65 with heavy protein in the urine than a patient with a GFR of 50 who has no protein in the urine. Oh. Okay, so the, the heavy protein in the urine tells me those patients are at much higher risk for needing dialysis in the future. They're also at a much higher risk for cardiovascular disease. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I, uh, I had a patient like this recently, just sent them to nephrology. So that's interesting, okay. And then those patients too, uh, who have, you know, a GFR, let's say between 30 and 90, but who have heavy protein in the urine, this is a really exciting time to treat these patients. We have, we have new drugs like SGLT2 inhibitors 
and um, finerenone uh, that can help to uh, really have um, important uh, outcome benefits uh, if we start them at, at the right time. Well, the Ozempic, um, the uh, GLP-1s too are cardiovascular yeah. protective as well. So Definitely. Um, and uh, going back to our first slide, you know, you want to be careful with um, uh, looking up any diabetes drug, uh, you know, um, uh, the dosing in, in kidney failure. Metformin needs to be reduced with a GFR less than 45 and stopped with a GFR less than 30. Um, in terms of sulfonylureas, glipizide is probably the safest for CKD patients. Um, I'm really excited about metformin. Um, they, they've done some changing on the rules with that. It used to be we stopped it immediately if they had kidney disease. And now the GFR can wear a little like it's less than 30, right? Yep. Yeah. And, and I educate my patients. It's not going to hurt their kidneys, but just there's a, a risk for a terrible acid condition like the acidosis that um, it, it's rare when it happens. But if it happens, it carries with it a 50% mortality rate. Mm. Um, so we just, we want to keep them safe. This, this new class of drugs, the SGLT2 inhibitors, I'm really excited about them. Um, they, they, uh, in the proximal tubule, they, uh, um, block a, a sodium glucose transporter. So, uh, you start spilling extra sugar into the urine. And although they're mild to modest diabetes drugs, um, they have, um, um, important effects on lowering uh, the risk for cardiovascular events and the need for dialysis. So for, a long time, uh, we used ACE inhibitors and ARBs um, to lower proteinuria and help protect our diabetics. Um, these SGLT2 inhibitors, uh, uh, it's a really exciting development for patient, you know, providers treating diabetics and, and uh, heart failure. And most diabetics would be on an SGLT2 now much quicker. Right? Much quicker, yep. Yeah, I think the, the big issue right now is still, I mean, most of my patients are Medicare patients on fixed uh, budgets. And uh, because these are new, they're all still uh, Very uh, trade and, and it can potentially be expensive. There are some uh, um, um, contraindications to using these, patient, these drugs in, in patients. So if they have critical limb ischemia or terrible PAD, you don't want to use them. Or if they're uh, uh, susceptible to genital uh, mycotic infections, you don't want to use these drugs. No, but they, they definitely have a lot of good promise. Mm -hmm. Plus, though, you get rid of all that glucose, you lose a little weight. Too. Well, you, yeah, a little weight loss is nice. But that's always a benefit. And then our, our, our wonderful Lasix. Now, Lasix we give when the kidney function gets a little worse, right? Then we switch from hydrochlorothiazide or thiazide diuretics to more of a loop diuretic, right? Well, so what I'll tell uh, patients is in general, hydrochlorothiazide, it's a really good blood pressure drug. It's kind of a weaker diuretic. Lasix, it's a, it's a decent blood pressure drug, but it's really good at uh, helping get rid of extra fluid. And uh, I like this slide. We all write for Lasix or other loop diuretics. Um, uh, the, the question comes up, is it better to give 20 milligrams twice a day or 40 milligrams once a day? And you wouldn't think there would be a difference, but there are gonna be some patients who respond better to the BID dosing than some patients who respond better to the once daily dosing. It all depends what their dose response curves. So the patient uh, on the left, I'm, I'm sorry for the podcast listeners, they, they can't see the slide, but for the patient on the left, this patient is probably gonna make uh, a whole lot more urine with the, the 20 milligrams BID dosing. Uh, the patient on the right, uh, they're not gonna respond much at all uh, to the 20 milligram dose, whether you give it twice a day or three times a day. So 
uh, for that patient, the 40 milligram dose is going to be more effective. So um, what I would what I would tell you is a diuretic, when you start it, you're going to see the maximum benefit within two weeks. So if I'm working with a patient to, um, in terms of its diuretic effect, so if I'm working with a patient to improve swelling in the outpatient setting, um, I will uh, ask them to call in two to three weeks with a, with a weight and a swelling update. In the hospital, if I don't see the results I want with my IV dosing, like I start doubling the dose every day. So question that I have is sometimes I'll be in the hospital, acute CHF, right? And they bumped up their Lasix dose. So let's say normally it was 40 milligrams BID and they discharge them on 80 milligrams BID. Mm-hmm. Now they're in your office. You're the primary care doctor. Is this the new dose for them? Or do we or need to bump it down? At yeah. Are we over diuresing them? And how do we know that? Well, I would, I would start by looking at their labs. Is their sodium still normal? Is the potassium okay? Uh, you know, um, uh, most diuretics can cause a little bit of an alkalosis. So is their bicarbonate okay? You know, if their bicarbonate is 38, we may need to stop the Lasix for several days. Um, and then, uh, you know, does their calcium look okay? Um, and then uh, on exam, like is it, is their swelling better? Uh, historically, is their, does their weight look better? So I, I wouldn't be afraid to keep them on 80 milligrams twice a day if their labs looked okay, if their exam was favorable and their weight was improved. But even if um, their exam still showed fluid overload, if there was a problem with their labs, I might, I might have to rethink my strategy. And would you, you would check them a little more often for a little while to see how they're doing on that, that new dose, right? Uh, most likely, yeah. Yeah, like maybe, I mean, I, I always had them come in every couple of weeks for a couple of weeks so I could, you know, because in the hospital, we can check their labs every day. Yeah. And we can see how they're going. But when they're outpatient, we might not see them for, you know, another month. And so much can happen. So when they first come home from the hospital on such a change, I like to watch them for a couple of weeks and then another couple of weeks to check things to see if it's stabilizing. Is that a good practice or doesn't really matter? No, I think that's a great practice. If I saw an emergency on the labs, I'll probably direct them to the ER uh, if there's something I'm concerned about. But maybe every week I would check labs on them to see. Check them for a little way. while to see that we're, we're at the right dose and nothing is getting too wonky from that. Or if I need to adjust something, that's, that's kind of been how I practiced. Um, in the hospital though, I'm spoiled because I can get them every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right. The key is to watch them close, especially when they come out of the hospital. That's really important. Great point. Um, This next slide, uh, can a dialysis patient still make urine? Sometimes I hear in the hospital, oh, they're a dialysis patient, they don't make urine. And and that that may not be true. So even a patient with a GFR of five, and remember GFR, although we'll typically refer to it in terms of percentage, it's really milliliters per minute per body surface area. So in this example, if a patient with a GFR of five, uh, uh, you know, they make uh, urine 60 minutes a day, 24 hours uh, a day, they might still uh, filter 7.2 liters. Mm-hmm. So they may still generate one to two liters of urine. They can still make a normal amount of urine. And this is really important. Dialysis patients who can make more than one cup of urine per day actually have improved outcomes, hospitalization mortality. So we, we try to protect um, uh, uh, dialysis uh, patient's ability to still make urine. And actually, uh, a lot of dialysis patients can benefit from uh, high-dose loop diuretics. Okay. 
So when do you change from Lasix to let's say Torsamide or you know one of the other Bumex? Yeah, Bumex. Um, if if they've been on Lasix at, at a you know a higher than expected dose or higher than typical dose for a couple of years and and we're not having uh, a success. Uh, that might be a good time to change. Torsamide and Bumex, they both have better bioavailability than Lasix. So, mm -hmm. so when I give someone 40 milligrams of, uh, of Lasix, they might absorb 30% of it. They might absorb 80% of it. I don't know. If I give someone uh, 40 milligrams of Torsamide, I know they're going to absorb uh, almost 100% of it. And uh, Torsamide has a little bit longer half-life uh, than Lasix. So you're just going to get a little more for your you know, bang for your buck, right? Exactly. All right, um, and then you've got some trivia for us. Oh, this is great. So, um, <laughs> and uh, uh, in the hospital, like, you know, choosing the right fluid is really important. So sometimes, you know, I'll get consulted after a few days and the sodium's high and the chloride's really high and the bicarbonate's low and they've been getting normal saline for the past couple of days. So, mm. so I, I like this slide because it just reminds you how much sodium is actually in one liter of normal saline. So one liter of normal saline has a, a, a little bit over 3,500 milligrams wow. of sodium. And so that's, that's equivalent to 20 small bags of um, <laughs> potatoes. Wow. That is, that is, that's, a lot. that's what we put everybody on thinking. It's not really going to do much of anything. It's just going to keep everything the same. And, and I think we're getting smarter and uh, um, more aware of like, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, our fluid resuscitation strategies in the hospital sometimes create problems later on. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so what would you recommend as the number one fluid to start somebody on? What do you like to see? Uh, you know, my, my um, practice pattern has changed. I, I use a lot more LR now than I did uh, oh, two or three years ago. Yeah. And, you know, even, even if somebody's slightly hyperkalemic, it's actually better the LR. It doesn't do, I mean, they used to really shy away from that. And I've, I've seen some articles that suggest LR. Is too. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in the, in the ER literature, because uh, if they're acidotic, um, you know, uh, saline has a pH of uh, five and a half. Mm. Right. Whereas LR has a little bit higher pH. So if you, if you avoid worsening the acidosis, potentially uh, the potassium can, can get better. And I also think like the body doesn't have an infinite uh, buffer source. Um, at some point, you're going to start to see changes if you keep giving them um, uh, normal saline. Now you can, you, if somebody has terrible liver disease, you can uh, theoretically run into the same problem, giving them, uh, you know, liter after liter of LR, but um uh, I use a lot more LR now than I did two or three years ago. Yeah, I think I'm beginning to see that trend uh, a little bit more too from the ER that they're coming up with with uh, LR instead of normal saline. And it used to always be normal saline. That yeah. was just what you saw. Or you saw D5 and half normal D5 saline. D5 half. Mm -hmm. Yep. You know, and, and that has its own issues too. So, you know, <laughs> but um, uh, questions. Um, uh, Nina, I know you had a couple of great questions. One was about creatinine clearance. Right? Yeah, talk a little about creatinine clearance and how you, you know, what would you advise to use to calculate it and how do you use it in practice? Uh, I don't use creatinine clearance a lot. I know a lot of our older drug dosing was based on creatinine. Yeah, clearance. yeah. Um, I'll tell you, uh, you know, probably once a quarter, I get a patient sent to me who has a slightly elevated creatinine and I have to decide 
does this patient really have CKD or could this elevated creatinine be normal for this patient? Okay. So for that patient, I'll do a 24 hour, uh, not only creatinine clearance, but also do a 24 hour urea clearance. So the creatinine clearance is going to, is going to just overestimate the GFR. The urea clearance is going to underestimate the GFR. So I'll take the average and kind of use that as a rough estimate of kidney function. Okay. In, in my dialysis patients who uh, I think they might have recovered enough to come off dialysis, we'll, we'll do the same thing. We'll check a 24-hour urine creatinine clearance and a 24-hour urea clearance. We'll take the average and if it's close to 20, we'll use that as a, as a good gauge uh, to maybe do a dialysis, uh, you know, um, a, a trial without dialysis. Okay. What about figuring out dosing for, for meds? Yeah, dosing for meds. That's always a big question. Um, I, so I usually start with uh, Epocrates, but if I, yes. if, I need, if I need more specific information, I'll, I'll go to um, something like up to date. Up to date. Yeah, I use up to date a lot. Yeah, I use both of them. Now, they're, what are they using to figure? Like they're using creatinine clearance. Yeah. I'm looking at Bactrim DS, okay? And I can give it renal dosing, creatinine clearance 10 to 30. So you would have to figure out what the creatinine clearance is to know right. to how to give them. And I use the calculator in Hippocrates to figure it out because it's not on the labs. Nope. Yeah, a lot of the EMRs will calculate it, but yeah, it doesn't get reported with the labs anymore. I'll, I'll, most of the time I'm going to substitute GFR for creatinine clearance. Okay, so um, how do you do that? Well, if, if their uh, GFR is 30, I'll, I'll assume a creatinine clearance around 30. Oh. Uh, the other thing, uh, if you want to cheat and you're yeah. in the hospital, you can, you can call the pharmacy. Uh, to ask oh, them. love that. Uh, drug dosing. Um, the other you thing is... You substitute GFR for, like if it says 10 to 30 for creatinine clearance, you make that GFR? Exactly. Oh, okay. Really? So you could just say creatinine, the, the GFR is between 10 and 30. That's how you would dose it. All right. It, usually creatinine clearance is going to be a little bit higher than whatever the GFR is. So okay. if the GFR okay, is so 20. Then you would save. Okay, gotcha. Okay. Now, now I will caution you. In the hospital, we yes. get labs every day. The computer uh, uh, calculates a GFR every day. That, okay. that is, th those are not reliable uh, estimates. Oh. Okay. For example, if you have someone, if you get consulted and the patient has made no urine in the last 24 hours and the creatinine is 1.7 and the GFR estimate is 29, they don't have a, a GFR of 29. They don't have a creatinine clearance of 29. They have a GFR of zero. Wow. And uh, same thing, if, if somebody um, uh, one day has a, a creatinine of whatever and a GFR 40 and the next day the creatinine is higher and the GFR is 30. The GFR might even be lower than 30. Those estimates are not designed for uh, the inpatient setting where numbers are changing day to day. They're, they're used as, as decent estimates for the outpatient setting where the creatinine is stable over time. So um, sometimes you have to uh, kind of think about the clinical scenario and, and uh, maybe the, the GFRs is a guide, but use it as an overestimate to the true kidney function. Very interesting. What about fractional excretion of urine? Do you use that much? Um, do you find that to be very helpful? Um, I, don't, I don't use fractional excretion of, of sodium or urea very much. Um, I'll look at the urine sodium a lot. And um, um, if I really want to, I'll calculate the fractional excretion of sodium, but usually the urine sodium uh, by itself is going to, is going to give you. Oh, uh, excellent. Uh, excellent. The urine sodium will be, um, 
uh, unreliable if the patient is alkalotic. So if, for, if a patient has a bicarb, let's say above 30 or so, you might want to use the urine chloride instead of the urine sodium. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't calculate the FINA uh, very often in my practice. Okay. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Young, I can't thank you enough. Any last words of wisdom that you can tell our students? Uh, I would just say when you place consults, whether it's uh, in the hospital or in the outpatient setting, and, and whether it's a, a, a nephrologist or some other consultant, I, I, would, uh, 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 I would recommend two things. Number one, um, have a question in mind. What is the question you want this consultant to answer? And the question could be as simple as, um, can you help me manage the low sodium in this patient? So that, that's a question, but have a, have a question in mind uh, when you're asking a consultant to, to assist with one of your patients. And then uh, going along with that, you don't always have to consult us. So uh, I would encourage you, one of the ways we all learn is by doing things on our own. Um, if, if somebody has a mild case of AKI or a mild uh, low sodium or uh, uh, a mild whatever, um, and, and you wanna um, you know, challenge yourself and, and learn how to management, uh, contact your consultant and say, hey, I'd like, I'd like to curbside you. Here's what I'm dealing with. What would you recommend? And I think by, by getting that confidence that you can take care of this low sodium on your own, uh, you're going to help a lot of patients uh, uh, down the road. Um, and uh, find a good consultant to work with, someone where uh, you, know, you, can, you can bounce the same patient off them the next day or a couple of days later, uh, just in case things don't improve the direction you were hoping for. But I, I would say you don't always have to consult us. You can, you can curbside us and, and that'll be good for uh, your confidence and for patient care. You That's know, excellent I, advice. I can't, I can honestly attest that works. Um, and, and I know you guys like texts, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, cause you can text you and say, Hey, I've got a patient. I'm going to ask you a quick question. Then you can call us and we can talk about it. Or, and you have been so helpful. You've even gotten in the computer and looked at things and said, Oh, Oh, oh yeah. Maybe you want to try this. And if they're still not better consult me, you know, tomorrow or the next day. And that works in the outpatient world too. You know, um, because like you said, you don't want to be bombarded with every kidney patient ever, right? You know, and we do learn by doing and trying different things and, and by talking to each other. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you, so Dr. Much. Young. This has been excellent. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Thanks, ladies. And for all of you listening, you can uh, go to our YouTube channel, which is NPS Change Nurse Nurse Practitioner Change Practice, which is NPS Changing Practice. You got to put the S on there, and um, it's on YouTube. It's on our podcast, which is NPSChangingPractice.com, or of course our podcast. Again, thank you for listening and uh, submit comments or suggestions on what other topics you would like us to present. Yeah, thank don't you. forget about our website. Thank you. All right, thanks. Bye. Okay, now let's see. Stop recording. And I got to do this right. Are you sure you want to stop recording?